Everyone, um, I join my welcome to Melissa's. I'm Janet B, recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Really excited to continue on with working with others. We did the first part on Monday. So we basically talked about how when you meet someone, it's not just, hi, I need a sponsor. Hi, I'm an available sponsor. Okay, let's go. That first, if you're looking for a sponsor, you have a right to make sure that sponsor has what you want and what should you want right that they have a spirit that they have had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps that they have been changed the food obsession is gone and just as important they live their lives on a different basis not perfectly but on a way more unselfish basis than they did before they took the steps and they're willing and able to take you through the steps. And what should a sponsor look for? You know, on page 58, it tells us the requirements of someone who can have a sponsor. It says, if you've decided you want what we have, a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. So the first conversation, call it the Starbucks conversation, we sit and we find out about the person, we tell her about us, we listen to her story, we get to know the person because people don't like to feel like projects. They wanna feel like there's a friendship there, that there's a fellowship there. And then what it says to do is it says, give him your copy of this book um, and see if he comes back having read it. Now, a lot of times now we meet people in the, a 12-step room, so they've already read this book or they're familiar with this book. So what I generally do is I give them an assignment. Um, I give them a podcast that I did just because since I did it, I know it's my style. I give them something to read and I ask them to call me back when they've done it. So that's where we've left off page 96. Obviously, it doesn't say you've listened to Janet's podcast. Um, it says, now you're making your second visit to a man. So you've given the person something to do. He or she has done it. And now you're getting together. And it says, he has read this volume and says he is prepared to go through with the 12 steps of the program of recovery. I'm on the middle of page 96. So someone says they've read, they're familiar. They know what the steps are, what the process is, and they're willing to do it. And that's okay. Then um, what I generally do with someone at that point is I lay out for them what I require from a sponsee. Um, and again, as a sponsor, you get to make your own requirements. Obviously, they have to be based on the big book. But just real quick here, some things that I require. Um, that they'd be on a food plan that's weighed and measured. Because the way I think about it, if you're an alcoholic, you know you're abstinent if you don't have alcohol. And for a compulsive eater, we know we're abstinent if we stick to exactly what our food plan says. So I want a food plan. I want it committed to me before breakfast every day. I ask a person to spend 30 minutes in the morning with God. Um, why? Because this whole program is about getting a relationship with God. And in order to get a relationship with someone, you have to spend time with them, right? Any of us who are married know that when we were dating our husbands, it wasn't like we met and then it's like, 
okay, let's get married. We spend time, we get to know the person and we are getting a relationship with the creator of the universe. So we want to spend time. And I give them ideas about what they can do if they say, what am I going to do for 30 minutes? Say, let me tell you what you can do. Um, and then I tell them how many meetings I expect them to go to a week. And that depends if it's someone who's, you know, independently wealthy, has no responsibility. Um, it's going to be different than a single mom with four kids and three, you know, three jobs. So I tell them, how many meetings? I tell them which meetings. Um, what I usually do is I say, try and pick one that's local to you, because I think local fellowship is really important if you can. And then I recommend meetings that I think are strong meetings for some of the days. And then for a couple of days, I say, those days you can do what you want. Um, so, and I tell them I want them to make three phone calls a day. Now, phone call isn't just leaving a message and hanging up, three conversations. And this is important. I give them numbers of people who I know are strong in recovery because I want them right away to be surrounded by strong, recovered or well-recovering people who can help support them and encourage them. And, oh, and I tell them every day, do something that's a self-sacrifice that will help another person. Because the book says selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of this illness. We need to uproot it. We need a root transplant. So we need to be retransplanted into an unselfish environment. So we have to start practicing that. So if after all that, they say they're willing, then I'm it's like, okay, let's go. And we start going through the steps. But it says, let him know you're available if he wishes to make a decision and tell his story, but don't insist upon it if he prefers to consult someone else. I might tell someone what I require. They hear my personality and they say, thanks, but you know, I'd rather go work with you know, Susie Q. Perfectly fine. We don't say, I've invested four hours in you. How dare you pick someone else? It's all good. Um, and then they start telling us about ways to help. They say he may be broke, homeless. Should you help him? Now, again, remember, this was days when everyone was local. You know, obviously, if someone doesn't have a place to live and I'm in New Jersey and she's in California, it's pretty hard, right? What am I going to say? However, um, I have had two sponsees actually in Massachusetts who were struggling. And I've said, if you need, come down and like spend the weekend with me, come spend time with me. We open up our homes, but it says, make sure your family's going to be okay with it. Make sure you use discretion, right? That you feel safe. Um, and it says, make sure the person isn't trying to impose upon you for money, connections, or shelter. Well, what's connections? I think it could be two things. One, I mean, maybe someone needs a job. And she thinks I'll give her a job at my company and that's why she's doing it. Mm -mm. But sometimes it's a sponsor and someone doesn't want to do the work, but they think as long as I have a sponsor, everyone will think I'm okay. And maybe I can kid myself into thinking I'm okay. So we don't, um, we want to make sure that someone wants us to sponsor them for the right reason. And it says, if not, 
um, we're making it possible for them to be insincere and that that's aiding in a person's destruction rather than their recovery. There are times we've all had it who, when we're sponsors, who we're sponsoring someone and they're not doing the work, but because we just feel fondly for the person, we keep them on longer than we should. That's not helping them. And it says, in fact, it's, it's doing the opposite. It could be harming them. So top of 97, they say, okay, don't avoid the responsibilities. Make sure you're doing the right thing. And then they tell us helping others is the foundation stone of your recovery, not prayer, not meditation, helping others. And they say, yeah, a kindly act once in a while isn't enough. You have to act the good Samaritan every day if need be. Okay, who is this good Samaritan guy that we have to be like? So the good Samaritan, it's talked about um, in the New Testament. And basically the story goes, there was a guy who was beaten up by robbers and just kind of left on by the side of the road to die. And the religious people of the day walked by, looked at him and kept walking. And then a Samaritan walked by. A Samaritan would have been like a person from the wrong side of the tracks. Someone who, you know, wasn't one of the elite in society, was an outcast in society. And the Samaritan looked at the man, had pity, had mercy on him, put him on his own donkey. So which meant that the Samaritan had to walk, took him to an inn, paid the innkeeper to take care of him because he had a business trip or something to go on and said, when I get back, I'll pay you for any other expenses he incurred. So this Samaritan, right? I think it's actually kind of interesting. This group that was considered an outcast group. Now, whenever we hear the word Samaritan, we usually hear it with the word good, good Samaritan. So what are the characteristics of this good Samaritan? He sacrifices money, time, his comfort, and his convenience for the welfare of another person. And that's what we have to do. That's why it's so important to sponsor because inevitably um, sponsoring, you know, we don't sleep as much as we might like. We don't, we get interrupted a little more than we otherwise would have, but that's how we stay abstinent and happy. And they tell us what it takes, what helping others means. It says, it may mean loss of many nights sleep, great interference with your pleasure. Like I don't get to spend as much time in my pool over the summer as I would if I wasn't in this program. That's okay. That's okay. We get so much more. Um, interruptions to your business. This is, I mean, this is what they put up with then. A drunk may smash the furniture in your home or burn a mattress. Um, you may have to fight with him. You may have to call a doctor and administer sedatives. You may have to send for police. So, you know, us who are basically working with others by Zoom, we have to really almost look for ways to be inconvenienced. And so a good way to know if we're doing self-sacrifice is if we think, here's something I want for myself, and we can name it. I want X, but I'm giving it up to do Y for somebody else. That's the kind of thing we have to um, 
to, we have to work on. See, this meeting at its essence is not about like tools and rules. It's about finding God and being of service to others. Okay, so bottom of page 97, they tell us, okay, what if the person doesn't respond? And it says, you can still maybe try and help their family. Um, and, and then here's a principle that we can practice if we have family members who aren't acting the way that we know they should. Um, it says, should they, the family, accept and practice spiritual principles, there's a much better chance that the head of the family will recover. So that tells me if I accept and practice spiritual principles, there's a much better chance that my kids and I will get along better. Um, my husband and I will get along better, that things will be better. Why? Why does my practicing spiritual principles make lead to a better chance that other people will start doing the right thing? And I think there's a few reasons. One, the atmosphere is going to be calm. If I'm not trying to always get everyone to do what I want. Um, my son came home for Thanksgiving break and he bought this TV, it has to be five feet long. And he put it in his room. He wasn't even taking it back to college because he has another TV there. He's just leaving it here for when he's home on breaks. And he spent a good deal of his time in his room watching TV. And you know what I did about it? Pretty much nothing. Because um, I want a calm atmosphere. If I said, you need to come out of your room, come on, like, why are you home? If you're, what would that have done? Just made more tension. So it creates an atmosphere of calm and love breeds love. So now I'm giving my son an opportunity to choose on his own to come out and participate in the family. And if I'm not trying to run the show and I'm practicing spiritual principles, love, tolerance, surrender, I've invited God in and God can do for me and for them what I could never do for myself. So the best thing we can do if someone isn't acting the way we want is for us to practice spiritual principles. Um, page 98, it says that, um, yes, we give and we help, but we are not a service organization and we don't put our work on a service plane because it says then the alcoholic starts to rely on our assistance rather than God, saying he can't get better until his material needs are cared for. And the book has one response to that, nonsense. Um, it says, job or no job, wife or no job, wife or no wife, we don't stop drinking as long as we place dependence upon others ahead of dependence upon God. So for all of us who are maybe unemployed or unmarried, we can get well anyway. What's the condition? We place dependence on God first. Well, how do we do that? What does that mean? So I think, first of all, it means sponsors are not life coaches. Yes, we might give a little advice every now and then. But if, if someone calls me and says, I got two job offers, I don't know which one to take. I don't know. Um, what we say is, go to God, get quiet, see what 
God's perspective on the matter is. Then we can talk about it. But if I call my sponsor with an issue, she almost inevitably says, did you go to God first? And then it tells us, and this is a sponsor's job, burn the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get well regardless of anyone. The only condition is that he trust in God and clean house. So anyone, if you are sitting here and you've been binging and don't know how to stop, you can get well. Two conditions, trust God. Why do we have to trust God? Because only once we trust God, are we willing to surrender to God? And when we surrender to God, then God can start taking action. It's like I've untied his hands. Um, as long as I say, God, I got this. Well, God's a perfect gentleman. He's like, fine, Janet. Oh, you know, I'll let you do it. Um, and clean house. That's steps four through nine. We clean up the wreckage of our past. And then we continue and clean up the wreckage of our day. And then it gives us kind of more principles to practice. It's page 98 at the bottom. It says, okay, about domestic problems. There's probably going to be arguing. And it tells us a few things that a new person, that a sponsor is supposed to tell a new person to practice. But I say we can all practice these things now. Number one, though his family be at fault in many respects, he should not be concerned about that. He should, con he should concentrate on his own spiritual demonstration. So if other people in my house are not acting, you know, if they're being lazy or selfish or whatever, I ignore that. I only look at how am I acting? Now, of course, if I have young children and it's my job to raise them, then of course I have to teach them things. Um, but they're saying I'm supposed to concentrate on my own spiritual demonstration. Number two, argument and fault finding are to be avoided like the plague. So we don't argue and we don't nitpick. We don't look to you know, find fault. And it says to be avoided like the plague. Well, what do we do? We've all had, unfortunately, experience with a plague recently. And what do we do? We put a mask on, right? So how can we put on a spiritual mask? And I heard once this wonderful woman in AA teach me the shut up prayer. And it goes like this, God, please keep one hand on my shoulder and the other across my mouth. God, please keep one hand on my shoulder and the other across my mouth. Okay. Um, we don't argue. We don't fault find. And it says, top of page 99, it is a promise. It says it may be difficult, but if it must be done, if any results are to be expected, if persisted in for a few months, the effect on a man's family is sure to be great. Okay, so that's a promise. Now, it tells me it may take a few months, right? Because change is slow, especially if we've, you know, had some bad patterns that we've developed. But also, if it takes months, what a great opportunity for me, for us to learn to grow in the virtue of patience. But look at what it also says. It's a warning. It says, okay, in many homes, this is a difficult thing to do, but it must be done if any results are to be expected. 
So if I'm still binging, they're telling me I need to look at, am I arguing, fault finding, concentrating on what other people are doing instead of myself? And they say, if I am, I should not expect any results in this program. So they go on and give us kind of more guidance with the family. And again, another stern warning. It says, we have to continue to demonstrate we can be sober, considerate, and helpful, regardless of what anyone says or does. And says, yeah, we're all going to fall below the standard, right? And there are going to be times where we're inconsiderate, where we're not helpful. But here's what it says but we must try to repair the damage immediately lest we pay the penalty by a spree. So if I'm a inconsiderate and unhelpful to the people in my family, they're telling me I'm gonna end up in the food. So I wanna pause a second and talk about what do we do then? What, let's say someone pays the penalty by a spree. Do we say, oh, let's go back to the doctor's opinion. And I say, no, that we look at, you know, where a person got in trouble and fix it at that place. So let's say there's a woman who every day when her kids come home from school, you know, just smacks them across the face and says, go to your room and slides supper under the door. Um, it doesn't matter how many phone calls she makes, how many meetings she goes to, I can would safely say she is not going to be able to stay abstinent. So let's say someone's working with her and gets, I don't know, a few chapters in, a few steps in, and then she tells her sponsor what she's doing. I mean, the first thing the sponsor is to say is stop smacking your kids, stop sending them to the rooms as soon as they get home. Start practicing love and patience and self-sacrifice with your children. We don't have to go back and like reread everything. We have to kind of get back on the horse where we fell off. The same goes for um, in the chapter, the end of how it works. It talks about if we fall down on our sex ideal and we're not sorry, we are quite sure to drink again. So if someone's, you know, cheating on our husband, we don't say, let's go back to the doctor's opinion. We say, stop cheating on your husband. Um, so again, I just wanted to interject that there for sponsors, because sometimes, you know, there's an uncertainty, like, what do we do? Do we drop someone as soon as they pick up? What do we do? And I, you know, again, my opinion is, no, we don't drop someone as long as they mean business. Page 120 is really clear about that, that a person can slip, can pick up, even if they mean business. And we just have to help them figure out why they fell off the horse. Okay, um, page bottom of 99, again, they reiterate, let no alcoholic or compulsive eater say he cannot recover unless he has his family back. So I would say let no compulsive eater say she can't recover unless she has fill in the blank. And they say, this isn't so. Our recovery isn't dependent upon people or circumstances, page 100. It's dependent upon our relationship with God. So often I heard at meetings and back when I was binging, um, I'm sure I said, I picked up, I binged because, and there was always a reason. 
and it was an external circumstance because of what this person did, how that person treated me instead of um, I ate compulsively because there's something wrong with my spiritual condition. If we eat compulsively 100% of the time, it's because there's something wrong with our spiritual condition. And then um, page 100, my second favorite paragraph in the big book, it says, both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. We should always be growing. We, there should always be something that we're working on in our spiritual life. You know, if we've been around a while, we can stop and ask ourselves, how am I trying to grow spiritually today? What am I doing? Um, it says, if you persist, remarkable things happen. When we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. See, we don't always see it at the time, but when we look back, it's like, this is better than anything I could have planned. Well, of course, my plans are limited by my imagination, but God's imagination is limitless. So I want God to make the plans for my life. And then... um a conditional promise, follow the dictates of a higher power. So that's the condition. Do what I think God wants, even if I don't particularly like it. And then you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. God can either change my circumstances or he can change me so that I can rise above my circumstances. Um. Then it tells us, okay, the family may say, well, he's not perfect. And it says, we point out his defects of character are not going to disappear overnight. Show them he's entered upon a period of growth. And I think most of us fall off the bed on either one of two sides. Either we enable the heck out of ourselves and say, oh, if you had my husband, my kids, my boss, you do that too. You know, we, we enable ourselves and sometimes we fall off the bed on the side of, oh, you know, I've been in this program for like three whole minutes and I just, you know, got a resentment, you know, and we think we should be perfect right away. And so we have to be careful of either. There's a period of growth. I've been at this 39 years and there are still some areas of my life where a lot of growth is needed. Um, so we want to realize like we're not going to change overnight. However, the obsession with food um, can be removed instantly. Or if not the obsession, um, even if we still think about food, we have the power to resist it. That can happen very quickly. Bottom of page 100, it says, okay, if we're spiritually fit, we can do all sorts of things that alcoholics aren't supposed to do. So basically, if we're spiritually fit, we can go in a grocery store and not worry that the candy aisle is going to you know, reach out its hand and grab our throat. Um, why? Because we're safe and protected. Not because we're good, not because we're strong, because God protects us. Um, and it says, yeah, some people say, don't have it in your house. Don't go to friends' houses who have it. Don't, um, don't go to movies that have pictures of food. And it says, our experience shows this is not necessarily so. Meaning it might be so, especially at the beginning. Um, when I, I remember early on, 
I was newly abstinent. And at my job, there was a pizza party. I did not go. I let they, they had their party in their room and I sat in the back eating my lunch. Um, now, if people are eating stuff that I can't have, it doesn't phase me. But, you know, even when we're recovered, there may be days or certain foods that still phase us too much. And then the right thing the book tells us is to not go, to not be around, work with another alcoholic instead, help someone instead. Um, and it tells us before we go somewhere, we ask, do I have a good social business or personal reason for going? Or am I expecting to steal a little vicarious pleasure? And it says, make sure your motives are good. And then a rule for going into occasions where there's going to be food or really any occasion when we go to work, when we come home from work and are with our families. Here's a spiritual principle to practice in all our dealings. Do not think of what you will get out of the occasion. Think of what you can bring to it. That's how we should go into every interaction. And they say, we're not supposed to withdraw from life. Um, we can let people know that we've had a food problem. And you know, maybe if our best friend wants to go out to eat and she suggests a pizza place and that's not on our food plan, we can say, you know what, that, that really doesn't work for me. And let me tell you why. Um, and maybe there'll be a day where, you know, a person can then go to a pizza place and order a salad. Um, but it's okay to let people know they're telling us. And then page 102, they tell me my job, my job with a capital J. Your job now is to be at the place where you may be of maximum helpfulness to others. So where can I be of use to others? Um, and it says, stay on the firing line of life with these motives and God will keep you unharmed. That we just, we do what we think he would have us and trust him to protect us. And then they talk about keeping liquor in the home, or, you know, we might say keeping, I don't know, Pop-Tarts in the home. And it says, some of us do, some of us don't. Um, some of us think we never should. And it says, we never argue this question. And this is really important for us when it comes to food plans. Some people can be really militant about food plans. Like no one should ever have anything that has, you know, a speck of whatever in it. And it tells us, page 103, we feel that each family in the light of their own circumstances ought to decide for themselves. I personally, I don't discuss my food plan with anyone other than my sponsor and my nutritionist because I don't want people to either judge me or to say, oh, well, Janet eats whatever, um, maybe I can eat it, even though before they thought that was a trigger food for them. So I think in general, you know, I keep my food plan quiet. Um, but it tells us we're careful never to show intolerance or hatred of drinking as an institution. I put sugar as an institution. Like our job isn't to, you know, bedevil the sugar institution, um, like I personally can't go near cats. I'll get very sick. It doesn't mean cats are bad. It just means my body has an unhealthy reaction to cats. If you want to have a cat, it's fine. Um, and it says having that attitude of intolerance or hatred 
isn't helpful to anyone. And it says, um, people are relieved to find we're not witch burners. What's a witch burner? A witch burner is someone who says, if you're not like me, you're evil. So again, we don't want to look at maybe different factions and different 12-step programs and put them down. Um, it's like live and let live, right? That's what our book tells us. All I can do is to tell you what works for me. And they tell us intolerance repels alcoholics or compulsive eaters. So we don't want to be intolerant of other people, intolerant of food plans. And when we're sponsoring someone, we don't want to be intolerant of, of their shortcomings. I mean, always we have to remember, we are never better than our sponsees. We just got on the bus one or two stops ahead of them. That's it. And by the time we ride the bus a while, we're going to be at the, we're going to be at the same stop. So we're not better. We just work the steps a little bit sooner. That's it. And then they tell us their hope. Someday we hope Alcoholics Anonymous will help the, the public to a better realization of the gravity of the alcoholic problem. But we shall be of little use if our attitude is one of bitterness or hostility. So we are not bitter about food or really about anything. And we're not hostile. And then they conclude by telling us our problems were of our own making, right? Back in chapter five, it says selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of this illness. So again, we need a root transplant. Um, our problems were of our own making because we were selfish and self-centered. Bottles or food were only a symbol. It's like a, a fruit of it. If I'm selfish and self-centered, um, it's like it creates a certain soil in my soul that the illness of compulsive eating can blossom in. I need to change the soil of my soul to unselfishness and God-centeredness. And then the illness won't be able to take root there. It's like it gets a, you know, it's like pulling up a weed. It, it, it can't survive there. And says, we've stopped fighting anybody or anything. We have to. I have found um, when I I can remember that I don't need to fight anyone or anything. I don't need to get my way as long as I keep remembering that God's got my back. God has our back. We believe God has launched search and rescue missions for all of us and that we all can recover. And I hope we all get the joy that comes of like working with others. And with that, I will pass. Thanks.